0: My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st Century. Welcome to Episode 9 of Season 3. Hopefully you've noticed by now that in every season of this show I try to bring you a blend of the artistic and the commercial and to help you with your professional and personal development. So every season I want to have at least one interview giving you solid business advice for the specialist needs of a creative business. This season... I'm pleased to welcome my friend Emily Cohen to the show to share insights from her new book, Brutally Honest, No Bullshit Strategies to Evolve Your Creative Business. The interview is full of great advice and ideas to help you if you're running any kind of creative business. It's also a lot of fun because, as you can probably guess from the book's title, Emily has a very down-to-earth and irreverent approach to helping people. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to share some writing advice with you. And this is not just for the professional authors in the audience, because these days we all have to write things for work, and sometimes there's a lot riding on how well we do it. So I'm sharing a tip that will help make important writing assignments easier and less stressful for you. And most importantly, more effective. Have you ever started work on an important piece of writing and found yourself getting tied up in knots? You spend ages staring at the screen, writing, deleting and rewriting over and over again. The harder you try, the more you work, the more stuck and confused you feel. In my experience, this tends to happen when there's something big at stake. When you're writing an important proposal, or a book, or a sales page for your business, or an article or a presentation designed to raise your professional profile. Now, for our purposes today, I'm not talking about writing fiction or drama or poetry. Those are specialist areas that often require specialist solutions. I'm talking about non-fiction writing to do with education or business or personal development or leadership or creativity or whatever else is relevant to your work. In my own experience and my experience of helping clients with their writing, at least eight times out of 10, there's a simple reason for this problem. You're trying to work out how to say something before you've worked out what you want to say. This is why you can't get that sentence or that paragraph right. You say it one way, but that doesn't quite hit the mark, or it leaves out something important, or it doesn't make sense unless the reader already understands something else. So you delete the sentence and say it another way, but that doesn't hit the mark either. It has all the same problems in a slightly different configuration. If you find yourself in this situation, I have a solution that is so simple and easy that you might struggle to believe it would solve such a complicated and difficult problem. I've used it myself countless times and with lots of coaching clients when they're stuck writing their book or their proposal or their website copy or whatever else they're working on. And it nearly always does the trick. So here it is. You divide your writing into two stages. Stage one is where you write down what you're trying to say in the simplest, most basic language you can think of. Your aim at this stage is simply to create an outline of the flow of your argument an ordered list of the key points you want to make and the key examples you want to use to back up your points. And when I say basic language, I mean basic. I'm talking caveman language, Tarzan language, three-year-old language. You don't need sentences or paragraphs, just a few words or phrases. It helps to number your points so you can see the sequence clearly. For example, If I were writing an article on how to get over stage nerves, the outline might sound something like this. Point one. Public speaking is scary. Point two. Because it's scary, most people avoid it. Dash. Top ten fears according to research, etc. Point three. So if you can overcome this fear, you become special. Point four. Define special. Dash, an expert, an authority, charismatic person, etc. Point five, being special can really help your career. Dash, list career benefits. Point six, first step in overcoming fear equals realize it's normal. Okay, that's enough to give you the idea of an outline. As you can hear, it's not elegant. But it's actually more polished than I would normally write for myself, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense when I read it to you. If you're more visually minded, you might want to draw your outline like a flowchart with arrows connecting the points, and maybe even add some little pictures. Or you might want to use post-it notes with a post-it for each point, and the nice thing about doing this is you can then move the post-its around and, and reorder them, or screw them up and throw them in the bin. So. Once you've done the outline, you have finished working on this piece of writing for today. You can pour yourself a cup of tea and relax. When you come back to it the next day, you're ready for stage two. And what do you find when you arrive at your desk the next day? A beautifully clear outline telling you what to write. It's like the story of the elves and the shoemaker, where the shoemaker wakes up and the elves have laid out his work for him in the night, as if by magic. So, at this point, you know exactly what you're going to say. All you need to do is work out how to say it clearly and engagingly. Which is easy. All the intellectual heavy lifting has already been done for you. It's like colouring in or joining the dots in a puzzle book. So, Why is it so much easier this way, at both stages of the writing? Because you're only doing one thing at a time, so you can give that thing your full attention. At stage one, you're purely putting together the building blocks of your argument. It doesn't need to be pretty, but as long as you build a strong foundation, it will bear the weight of the blocks you put on top. If you realize you've missed a step, or that there's a big hole in the logic of your argument, it's not a huge problem to fix. You don't have to go back and rewrite pages of text. You just need to add a new point to your outline, or delete a point and replace it. Or maybe swap them around. At stage two, you can focus all your attention on finding the right words to express the ideas and the outline. You can take time and pleasure in finding just the right word, or the perfect phrase, or in dreaming up a clever analogy to get your point across. Now, sometimes you get started on stage two and you get stuck again. This usually means you've identified a hole in the logic of your argument. If that happens, go back and fix the outline before you continue writing the text. Once your outline is clear again, the words will start to flow again. One of the big benefits of writing outlines is that you can cover a lot of ground quickly. So if you're writing a book, you can spend a morning just writing outlines for lots of different chapters. That morning will then set you up nicely for a week or two of writing up the outlines. And by the time you've run out of outlines, you've made great progress on your book. The same applies to a series of articles, or the different pages of your website, or (coughs) a season of your podcast. And no, I'm not suggesting you write like this all the time. Sometimes you start a new piece and the words flow easily and you're right in the zone. So if it's not broken, don't fix it. But if you get stuck on a piece of writing, then separating out the what and the how can help you get unstuck fast. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program the 21st century creative foundation course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school, on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, How to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. I first met Emily Cohen back in 2012, when we were both speaking at How Design Live in Boston the biggest conference for designers in the United States. I loved Emily's no-nonsense attitude and her down-to-earth business advice for designers. Since then, we've stayed in touch and hung out at other conferences we were speaking at over the years. And I've got to know Emily as someone with a distinctive point of view who's a valued source of advice for designers grappling with the business side of things. So when Emily told me about her first book, brutally honest, no bullshit strategies to evolve your creative business, I knew I wanted her to come on the show and share her ideas with you. It's a book about business for designers, and by extension for any kind of creative running a service-based business. As Emily says in the interview, most of the business challenges are common to any creative firm. It's a very comprehensive book, covering just about everything from dreaming up your vision for the business to marketing and promotion, pricing, proposals, contracts, and how to manage your clients and your team. A staggering amount of work has gone into writing it, not to mention all the years of consulting experience that it's based on. It also features case stories of real-life design firms grappling with the issues Emily describes, And as you'd expect, it's beautifully designed and printed, with gorgeous colours and infographics, so it really looks more like a coffee table book than a business manual. In this interview, Emily shares some of the most important and memorable ideas from the book, including why running a creative business is like being a parent, why you should specialise, and the dangers of relying on word of mouth for new business. She also talks about her own journey from designer to design firm manager to consultant and author. As you'll hear, her own career took off when she was brutally honest with herself about her ability as a designer and started looking for another path. If you run a creative business of any kind, Emily will give you some great questions to consider, as well as insights you can take away and apply. And if you're like me, you'll appreciate the fact that she delivers these with her trademark humor, enthusiasm, and frankness. Emily, how did you get started in this line of work?
1: Uh, That's actually a really good story. So I uh, actually went to graphic uh, design school. I have my BFA Mm -hmm. um, in graphic design. And... I was a designer for a few years, about five to seven years, um, and I worked kind of in house at at the Pottery Barn, And I worked in a design studio, and I worked in a magazine. And my last job at the design studio, I realized very quickly that there were amazing people that were so much more talented than I was, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. I didn't, I just didn't have a passion for doing design. I wasn't going to ever be great, mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted, I always wanted to be great at what I did. I never felt like I wanted to be just average, and um, Sort of like you know, super ambitious kind of person, and uh, mm-hmm. I was I was struggling. So I was like twenty, I don't know, twenty five, and I was struggling with what I was going to do. With twenty six maybe, and I was struggling with what I was going to do with that. And uh, so I just asked everybody I knew. I asked my clients and colleagues, and and everybody just asking them what well what should I do because I still love design. Like I really was involved in the profession. I had tons of friends in that area, and I didn't want to leave design, but I also felt like I was never going to be a good designer. Um, And so basically, I asked a lot of people, and everybody's like, you're really good at kicking everybody's butt. That should be a job. (laughs) 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 And so I was like, what does that mean? And when I first started, so this might show my age, there was really no project managers in design. were more like account managers and agencies but in design a lot of design firms if you remember this um in my in like in at least in america there weren't a lot of like people running studios other than creatives and so i just went to a bunch of creative firms and said i think i went to about seven firms in like a week that i just admired and i think one from like just a um, random person a studio that posted an ad for a studio manager and i uh I just wrote them emails or just, well, it wasn't emails. I just introduced myself and said that uh, I was very interested in sort of managing a studio that even though I didn't have any experience, I knew design very well. um, And I was really good at writing and managing people. And I was wondering if there was something there. And basically I got, all the firms offered me a job within the same week. Um, And it wasn't really because I was awesome, although I think I am. It was more because there was nobody offering to do that and who knew design. So I, um, I took, obviously the highest paid position and and ran a studio for seven years. Um, And so I pretty much learned on the job.
0: Well, also you, you were the person who knocked on the door and said, let me do this. Yeah, exactly. That's maybe a theme we'll pick up on a bit later on is, is putting yourself forward and and asking because you went to seven firms in one week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just sort of asked them and it was more like I wasn't asking necessarily for a job, but I was just saying, you know, this is something I could do. Is that something that you need? Like, is that something that exists? It was more like a conversation. <laughs> and uh, what
0: kind of responses did you get?
1: I got people who were like so excited that I knew design and I was organized and they're like, sure, we'll try it out. Um, I think the only response I got that was surprising to me is they thought it was an admin job. So I had to convince them that it wasn't to me and in my mind, an admin job, you know, administration. It was more like a management job. And yeah. so that was a little bit of a convincing part of it. And luckily I took a, I took a job with a firm that completely got that and That was really great because then I ended up managing that studio and had a lot of experience um, growing them. So when I first joined them, I think there were about three to five people. And then when I left, I think it was like 25, 30 people. And we moved twice. So I had a lot of experience just with the growth of a firm and managing all their clients. And then when we grew big enough, managing the project managers that managed the clients. And it was fantastic. But pretty much the word spread very quickly because... I'm sure you know this. Like the creative profession is sort of incestuous. Everybody knows everybody else. Mm -hmm. And the word spread pretty quickly that there was this woman out there that loved design and knew design and was involved in design, but could also write proposals and help manage you, you know, teach you how to manage a team. And so I started getting kind of a consulting practice on the side. Um, I just built up a consulting practice just through the word of mouth. People were like, Hey, can you write this proposal? Or, Hey, can you help me hire? Or, you know, Hey, how do I manage this person? And, uh, so then I started working, like, I don't know, like 70-hour weeks, and my um, fiancé at the time was like, that's a full-time job. You should quit your job and start being a consultant, and that's what I did.
0: <laughs> so, okay, why design? Why didn't you walk away and, and walk into another profession? What's special about design for you?
1: I love designers. I think designers are, first of all, I love the value we bring to the business world. I really feel very proud of the work that designers do, and I I love it. I still love what design does and who designers are. I think designers are incredibly great people, and creatives in general are actually one of the nicest people I've ever met. Like They all, for the most part, are actually really kind human beings, and I didn't want to leave that profession, and also because I had a a lot of equity in that already, and that I had become um, actively involved in our industry through our local, you know, through our local uh, AIJ, which is the American you know, Graphic Design Association. And yeah. um, I was really involved in that. And I didn't want to lose that kind of equity that I had built in all those relationships. It's what I knew. It's my. Whole, it was my whole world. And I didn't want to leave it.
0: And you're talking with great enthusiasm of this, you know, job of growing the firm and yeah. kicking people's butt. <laughs> Presumably you enjoy
1: this. I love it. I absolutely, I mean, I am like the happiest person in the world. I absolutely love what I do. I mean, I, can, and I work all the time and it's mostly because I just love it. I mean, I love who I work with and the impact I have on them. Yeah. And I just love the profession. I have so many friends in this space and they're, you know, my clients turn into friends. It's just, It's been a privilege to do something that I absolutely love.
0: And what is it that you love? Because, I mean, it doesn't sound like you're hankering. You're not hankering to get back designing. No. You actually love the managing and kicking butt and yeah. leading. What, what is it that's satisfying about that?
1: I think it's who I work with. I think designers in general are very open people and very nice people and very interested in learning and growing and changing. And so to see that I can have impact with those kinds of clients, I have less patience for politics and corporate hierarchy. And whereas working with creatives, there's really none of that. So I get to have a lot more impact. Um, and so they, not always, but they, for the most part, listen to me and I get to see the results of my efforts. That's the Mm -hmm. other thing that I think I love so much is that I actually get to see if my consulting pays off. And also I think the other thing, what I love about our industry is it's changed so much in the 30 years I've been doing this and I love change. I'm sort of a risk taker. And so I love learning new things and growing and changing and pivoting and, um, I think that's also something that has always intrigued me about our profession that just when I think I can do one thing, my clients will say, can you do this other thing? And I'm like, I've never done that other thing. Um, And somehow they still want me to do it and I do it and it works. And then I do more of it and then it's a business. (laughs) So I've allowed my clients a lot of times to tell me, hey, you should do this one other thing I need you to do. And if I want to do it, then I did it and it worked. So I kind of love that. I love that my business keeps growing and changing. It's not static.
0: And I love the fact that you're showing up, you're asking questions, but you're also trying things. Yeah. Seeing what happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's, I think really important. I, I, you know, I'm not going to let them push me into doing something I don't want to do or something that I don't feel I have an innate ability for. Um, but I am, I do do interest. I, yeah, I kind of love trying new things and changing my services to go with the flow. So. Here's an example. Like when I first started my career, a lot of designers didn't really have any business skills. So the generation that I was in really were just creative people. They were artists, right? Yeah. And they considered themselves artists. And so they needed me to write proposals and do kind of like tactical stuff. And so that's what I did. But then over the years, I started working with more millennials. And millennials are so much smarter than my generation ever was in terms of business. And they mm-hmm. could do a lot of the stuff that I was providing. They didn't need me to write proposals. They didn't need me to, you know, to do things that I wouldn't have normally done. But they, needed, they still needed my, my insight and my advice. So then I developed a new service where I helped them plan their business and look, for the, look towards the future and how to evolve. So I kind of love that my business has evolved depending on who I'm working with at any given moment. And the generational differences is amazing. So I love working with millennials in particular. So it's made me even just happier because they're they smart. They're really smart. So they make me think and they challenge me, which I love.
0: And talking of generations, there's a lovely section in the book where you – you talk about why, why running a creative firm is like being a parent. Mm-hmm. And before we get into that, I think I'd like to say, you know, the book is primarily aimed at design firms, which obviously is the area that you specialize in. But I also think a lot of the points that you make are, are relevant to any kind of creative business.
1: Yeah. And that's, yeah, I actually just spoke at a conference. There were industrial designers there and all kinds of other creatives. And a lot of people came up to me and said that there was so much in that book that was applicable to them. So I was feeling very good about that.
0: Great. Well, then let's pull out some of the wisdom from it. So let's start with that question: Why is running a creative firm like being a parent? Yeah. Give, give us a couple of examples.
1: It's funny. That's actually the most popular part of my book. I've gotten a lot of inquiries about that, and um, it's been really interesting. It's just a one pager on my book, but you know, as a somebody who is a parent, um, I realize that there's a lot of commonalities from being a parent and running a creative firm. Um, obviously, to start with, the obvious thing is that shit happens. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just kind of have to deal with it. Um, I think the other thing, and this is, I think the most important analogy is that when you raise your kids and even dogs, like if you have kids and dogs, you get, you understand this, maybe not cats, (laughs) Uh, but they need structure and rules and they need to be praised and rewarded, but they also need consequences of bad behavior. And when you do that, when you give them these kinds of rules and consequences, they don't stop loving you, right? They still love you but they, mm-hmm. they, they thrive. And I think that, that that same thing applies to staff and clients, that a lot of designers kind of treat their, staff and, cl- and their the staff and clients sort of as they're like, just want to be people pleasers. And they're afraid of pushing back. So they're afraid of giving authentic performance reviews. They're afraid of telling clients no, or pushing back when mm-hmm. a client has art direction that they disagree with. And just like being a parent, if you push back and give them consequences and give them rules and structure, I actually think, Clients will, and I've seen this happen, clients will value you and trust you more um, mm-hmm. and they will accept that and still love you. I think designers, that's one of, I think the biggest analogy I can have to parenting is that clients are just like your, 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 your um, children. They need rules, they need structure, they need consequences, they need praise. And if you manage them well, they'll still adore you and defend you and be your advocates.
0: And I think maybe another way you could you could look at that from the client's point of view is it means you, you're going to be reliable and you're going to be a professional. Yes. So if there's one thing that you don't want when you're a client hiring somebody is promises are not kept, commitments fall through, and you're left thinking, well, what's actually happening here? So I think if you can let the client know the way you work. And have some established ground rules, yes. then it's it's reassuring. Yes, I think for and a also, I mean, I certainly know if I hire a creative that if I get a professional who talks about this stuff, I feel like oh, I'm in good hands here.
1: Yes, exactly. You sort of have to be the grown up in the room. You, you know, you're the adult, just like with kids. You have to be the adult, and same with clients. You have to be, you know, super professional. And not only do you give them the rules, but you actually have to enforce the rules, right? Like so, any parent learns that you can't just let them slack off. And waive the rules. You have to kind of really enforce them. And the same with clients. I think clients, if they're misbehaving, you sort of have to guide them and tell them how they're misbehaving, how that's impacting the project, and how you're gonna fix their challenge.
0: Okay, I emmy mean, I love that. Um any other ways in which running a business is like being a parent?
1: I think the other thing is it takes a village. Right? We always hear that about raising kids. You need kind of additional resources. You need grandparents or caretakers, and you need the neighborhood. And I think the same thing with designers. Yes. We can't do it yes. with creatives, any kind of creatives. We need a, a team of people behind us that we trust and that we admire. And that might be vendors. It might be strategic partners. It might be your clients. It could be you know, fellow competitors and colleagues it's just, I think we, need, and it's your accountants, it's your consultants, it's your lawyers. It's everybody that's involved in your business is, is your village and you need to rely on those and pull from, you can't do everything and knowing to, when to pull, get in help. That's more, that's um, better suited to what you need that you can't do. Like, you know, that if you're missing a skill that you bring in some people that have those skills. So I think there's that, that um, we need a village to support us and to grow um, I have this philosophy that I think it's very, very, very hard, almost impossible, and not sustainable to run a one-person creative endeavor. You need a village. You need people to support you, whether those are full-time employees or if it's just a team of contractors. You need people who can help you because it's very hard. You stagnate otherwise.
0: I mean, even if you are nominally one person, it's on any given week it's likely to involve a lot more people than that.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and we just we don't work in isolation. And also not only that, but what we do in um affects the community at large. So we need to be people, 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 persons. I don't know what the right word is. People, people. People, people. <laughs> Sometimes my words trip me over. But yeah, I think that's, there's something about that.
0: So Emily, the, the book is chock full of great questions. And I think you must see a lot of the time, there must be some really big questions that design firms either avoid or overlook. Well, what are some of the most common questions and really important questions that they're likely to be ignoring?
1: Um, I think there's a lot of good questions that you have to ask yourself. And some designers are afraid to ask those questions. Like most of the most important thing I think is who do they want to be when they grow up? (laughs) Designers have a Mm -hmm. tendency to be, or creatives, I think creatives in general have a tendency to kind of do whatever they're interested in at the moment without kind of having a long-term vision. So I think asking yourself, where do I want to be in five years? And how will I get there? Because then you'll be able to make some decisions along the way that are more informed rather than just kind of rambling around and wandering around doing random stuff or allowing your clients to drive the direction of your business. I think it's about taking control of your business. So I think that's really important question is where am I going and who, do, who would I want to be when I grow up? And that means what kind of work do I want to do? Uh, what's my, what, what is going to be my reputation? What, I, what do I want people to say about me? Who are the kind of clients I want to work with if it's a client-based business?
0: This is, you know, one of the things that you pick up on is that you say a lot of designers will say to you, oh, well, we pride ourselves on having our new business through referrals. But for you, you actually argue that that's a weakness. Yes. Could you expand on that? Yeah.
1: I, I don't know if i call it a weakness, but I think that it's not something you should rely on 100%. Obviously, mm-hmm. we love referrals because that's a pretty easy source of business. Um, and it's also based on people loving us, right? So referrals are coming through yeah. our kind of trust and through our great work, which is great. But if we rely on that, and honestly, most creatives rely for all their new business to be 100% referral-based. What happens, and this is why I think it doesn't work, um, is that it you allow your clients and all your colleagues and all the people you know to drive the direction of your business. So... It might be going in a direction you don't want to do when you start on taking on work or clients that maybe are not the kind of clients you want. And there might be awesome clients out there that you want to work for, but you never reach out because you're just waiting for somebody to connect you. But if your connections and your group of people do not know that person or that company, you'll never reach them. So part of it has to be new business. First of all, I hate that word, new business. I think it's a terrible word and it stops us from moving forward because people think that means cold calling. Um, but if we, if we curate our relationships and reach out to new people and be open to meeting new people and to mm-hmm. introducing our, I'm not a hundred percent against referral based businesses because I obviously being referred is wonderful because that's easy and you're getting clients um, pretty easy without much effort. And it's all based on trust and love so that people are recommending you because they love you and that feels really good for your ego. But I don't think that's a sustainable way to generate new opportunities. And so, I'm a really big believer in reaching out and trying to get the kind of clients we want to work for. Because we, if our businesses, and I will say to this, say to you that most creative businesses, 100% of their new business is through referrals. And they're proud of it. And I, I always say they shouldn't be proud of it because that's not sustainable. It allows your clients and the kind of community of people that you only know to drive the direction of your business. And it's your business, and you should take the reins and go after the kinds of clients and the kinds of projects you want to do. And that means you have to reach out and build new relationships and introduce yourself and be open to meeting new people and, and, and um, generating new relationships. It's, and I don't love the word new business. Um, I think it's just being proactive and reaching out to people and introducing yourself and saying, Hey, I would love to work with you or, you know, Hey, I just wanted to meet you. And so I'm a real big believer in being exposing yourself to the industries and kind of clients you want to work for and then introducing yourself. So if you see them speak, or if you've read their book, or if you read a blog that they posted is simply to write them and say, Hey, I loved what you said. I was you know, intrigued. We have things in common. I would love to meet you. So it's never actively pursuing new business. It's really just introducing yourself to people that you admire or that you want to work for and letting them know you're out there. And as a result, you'll get kind of opportunities that will help you grow and expand your business in a direction you control, not the clients that you currently work with.
0: Okay. And then, so presumably this relates to what you say about specialism, the the dirty word. Yes. Yes.
1: I have very strong beliefs in a lot of different areas. Okay.
0: (laughs) That's why you're on the show, Emily. Let us have it. (laughs) Uh,
1: But I'm also very flexible. So I should say I sound very, like, very strong-minded and I am in a lot of ways, but I'm also open to hearing it. I think that There are A lot lot of creatives just want to be generalists and they do that because they believe, and I think rightfully so, that they can do anything, that they're creative and they love to be challenged and do new things and they want to be open to new experiences. Basically what I say is they always want to design or create cool shit, right? And I love Mm -hmm. that. I think that's awesome. But because the industry has changed so much and it's such a saturated market, there are so many creatives out there many of them are starting many young students are right out of college are starting their own business which is very you know which is very different and so there's so much more competition than there ever was that in order to stand out in order to command higher fees and to be recognized and easily found you have to sort of be an expert and specialize in something or in a few things it doesn't mean you can't and i think when my when i say this cuz people designers in general and creatives in general hate the word specialization And they almost shut me down whenever I bring that conversation up because they think it's about that. They can't do cool work and they can't do interesting work and they can't, that doesn't mean that it means anything that's coming in that comes to you through referrals, you can still do, right? It doesn't mean you can't do the fun new project that you've never done in your entire life or something really interesting. It just means that you're also telling your clients and prospects that you're an expert in something and it makes you stand out from the slew of competitors out there. And you
0: have a few different types of expertise in the book. Could you maybe talk us through some of those?
1: Yeah, actually, that was um, developed by my my colleague, Jennifer Rittner. There's a chapter written by my colleague in there. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I wanted to show that there's lots of different ways to specialize, and there's pros and cons of each. Yeah. So some people specialize by aesthetic style. They have a very specific style, mm. and people come to them for that. But to me that's very difficult to specialize in because um, nowadays there's, it's, your style can get easily copied pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so there's that. There's also you know I'm a big believer in specializing by industry. So you have you might be specializing in I don't know you know, the financial space or in in working with nonprofits. But even that I think it is difficult to be a specialist in just nonprofits um, because there's so many no many most creators want to be in nonprofits. You could specialize so in the type of work in a deliverable. So you could just provide, you know, you just do app development. Okay, so there's lots of different ways to specialize. I'm a particular believer in specializing by industry. I think that's the best way to differentiate yourself mm-hmm. is to really go deep and know a, a type of industry really well. Whether that is um, something exciting to you, like cultural institutions, or something that you you have experience in like law firms or any kind of specialist i have a client that specialize in kind of all different things i have a really interesting client up in canada that specializes in what they call aboriginal or indigenous indigenous communities cuz um, they know the indigenous world indigenous world really well and they specialize in that um, so i think that really helps because then you could really you have that kind of market you could really go after it but you can you can specialize by process so a certain kind of process that you might have. But again, a lot of people think they have a proprietary process, but I think a lot of people, oh, the process sounds the same. But some people have a good job of, of differentiating themselves by process. Sometimes it's around how you provide strategy and how you look at strategy and if it's a strategic process. So that's a way of specializing. It could be through a unique business model. So Pentagram mm-hmm. is a perfect example of having a very unique yeah business model that makes them really stand out
0: maybe for people maybe outside the design world could you just say a little bit about the pentagram business model because it's quite yeah. interesting
1: actually yeah don't know enough about it but basically pentagram has um many many partners across different locations and each of the partners work together for the company but they're they're responsible for sort of their own little business entity and so they're responsible for contributing to the larger culture um but they all have different different skills and expertise so they have architects they have um interior designers they have graphic designers they have people that are specialists in different kinds of like magazine design versus branding and yeah so it's based it's a partnership model that is different in that the, each of the partners have their own kind of staff and own practice
0: and it's a real badge of honor to be selected isn't it
1: yeah it's really almost it's, it's a very elusive little club sounds <laughs> like an elite guild
0: <laughs> yeah it the, really is within the industry
1: yeah. And really, I've, I haven't seen a lot of people mimic that, but I think there are some firms that have different business models. And so you can differentiate yourself that way as well. And Pentagram is obviously the most famous one for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm a fan of the industry specialization or, or maybe topic because if it's something you really love, then it's not hard to keep up with it.
1: Exactly. And if you know it really well, and you, the other thing that's great about specializing by industry is then you know you have a very, you have know, some action items. You can find out where, all those, the, that industry congregates. What do they read? What conferences do they go to? And so that'll be easier to find them because you'll be in, uh, you'll be, you'll see that there are events and conferences and blogs and all kinds of things that attract them. So you can just pay attention to that market and it'll be much easier to reach out to them. But if you're a generalist, a lot of generalists don't know how to go get about, go about and get new business because they don't know where to start. And being an industry specialist gives you a starting point. There's a specialism around deliverables too. So you could specialize in a type of deliverable, like all you do is develop apps or you're just a branding specialist, or you just do, you know, annual reports. Um, although that's a little outdated. I think that you can also specialize with deliverable, but again, that's sort of very hard to figure out who is your clients because they will only possibly want you one time for that one deliverable. But that is something that a lot of firms do. They'll specialize by a type of deliverable.
0: Great. So that's specialism versus generalism. Another distinction that I think is really interesting in the book is executional versus strategic firms. Could you talk a bit about the difference between these two?
1: Yeah, this is my actually driving belief. I really think this is a trend in our industry, and I've been talking about it a lot because I think... Our industry essentially, the creative industry essentially across all different kinds of industries, not only graphic design, but industrial design and all kinds of areas is basically become two separate and entirely different kinds of industries. There's executional industries that are just simply service providers. The client says, hey, I need this done and you go do it. And it's very much like churn and burn. And there is a ton of work in that space. Actually, there's more work in that space than any other space. And there's a lot of firms that are in that space. But if you're in that space, you have to have a lot of different kinds of resources and you might have have to have a bigger team and it's all about schedules and budgets. It's kind of a different model than what I think where a lot of firms want to be are what I think are strategists or strategic firms. And Mm -hmm. those firms might be smaller and there's definitely less work in that space, but that is about not, it's not about, Quality, uh, quantity, it's about quality over quantity. So it's not about how much work you are doing and how fast you're working, but it's about your ideas and your thinking and your expertise. And when I say that, when I say um, stra- strategic versus executional, it's not only what kinds of work you're doing, but it's how you organize your team. So a strategic firm, everybody on your team is an expert. So even if you have production people, they are experts in production and they're advisory and they are providing insight to clients and clients are looking to them for their expertise. Whereas in an executional firm, they're like, just go program this site. And they're not looking for any expertise or any insight. And they might even have their own expertise internally and they don't need it from you. So I think firms need to decide which one they are. And a lot of them try to be everything to all clients. And I just don't think that's easy. So if you're at this, if you're doing you're at the strategic level, and then you continue to work with the client at executional level. So you've developed the brand guidelines, for example, and you've developed the look and feel, and then you start executing a bunch of communications or start just sending, you know, they say, I just need an email. They call you and say, Hey, I need an email, or I just need this. You end up becoming executional. And then when they need to have high level stuff again, they forget that you do that and they will go to another firm. I think it's hard to be both. And I think I'm telling creatives that they really need to take a stand and decide where they are and then really be the best that they can at that level. So, if they're executional, they should be amazing at being executional. They should have their schedules and budgets down to a science. They should have a team that could support all kinds of projects. And if you're a strategic level, you might have a smaller team, but every single one of those people are strategists and advisors and consultants.
0: So, do you have an example of a firm that might be a really great illustration of the difference between the two?
1: Sure. Um, so you think about FROG or IDEO, right? They are definitely at the strategic level.
0: Okay. And again, for the, for the non-designers out there, the, these are big names, right? In the yes. In the design. Just yeah. give us kind of a potted portrait of them.
1: Well, IDEO is about design thinking. Yeah. And FROG is around product development, mm-hmm. industrial design. Yeah. So executional firms are usually, or executional providers, are people that simply do work upon the client's request. So if you're an illustrator it might be I want this mural on my building and here's the exact image I want. Right. Um, but if you're a strategist they might say we have this mural tell us give us some ideas what do you think would be great for this kind of market or for this neighborhood. So they're looking at you for advice at a strategist level but at a executional level they're just literally art directing you and telling you exactly what they need. So even with a website if you're doing a website They might give you the content and they tell you exactly who their audience is. They might've done all the research already, um, or they don't even think of that. And they just say, I need a website. I don't care what it is. Just do it. And then they continue to art direct you along the way. But if you, if they say to you, Hey, I have this challenge and I don't like, I am having difficulty reaching my target audience or selling a product. And I think I need a website, but I would love your expertise. Then it's as an expert or as, as somebody that is more strategic, you're saying to them, well, I don't actually think you need a website. Or if you do need a website, you might need just a microsite. So you're being more advisory and clients are coming to you purely for your insight and ideas. But if you're executional, they say, I need this, go do it.
0: Right. And from my conversations with design clients, I've, some of them say, it's, you know, the difference between being given a brief and being able to, to create the brief or help the client formulate the brief. Exactly. It's usually a much more interesting and creative conversation than having to do what someone else is, basically execute someone else's decision.
1: Right. It's around solving problems, right? So they say, here's a problem. Can you solve it? That's awesome. If they say to you, they have identified their problem and it's your job to fix their problem, right? Yes. Yeah. No, that's really true. I think the creative brief is a perfect example.
0: So you've given us a lot of kind of outward-facing examples about who the firm is, who they serve, the kind of work that they do. Let's have a look behind the glass doors for a moment. Mm -hmm. And you have this really nice section where you talk about the five most important roles in a creative business. And maybe we could pull this out because I think this applies to many businesses other than design firms.
1: Yeah, so in, in working with creative teams, I've identified five areas or functional areas That I often feel are overlooked in a creative firm. And if any one of these are not, um, don't have somebody paying attention to that, to that area, then I feel like the firm will, will suffer. And it could be that one person does all five of these roles, or it could be that you have different people assigned to these roles. But the five roles that I see that are often overlooked or not given enough attention because you're spending more time on billable stuff are your business vision. So one of them is your business vision. This is about your firm's positioning and your overarching business goals. Where are you going and who do you want to be when you grow up? Spending some time and thinking about that and having somebody dedicated to that or somebody that just knows that's part of their responsibilities. I think that's one of them. The second one is operational leadership, and this is not project management. Project management is billable. Operational leadership is looking at the bigger picture and planning how you work as a team, developing training, and and looking at how we can have technology manage us. I think looking at operational areas from a bigger picture is missing on design teams, so operational leadership. The third one is creative leadership. That is one that's a little bit more common, which is about team building and mentorship and growth. It's not just doing the work and and art directing people. It's really grooming them and growing them and learning and developing. So looking at creative leadership as a functional area. The fourth area is business development. Uh, Most people spend a lot of time, and we talked about this, just on reacting to incoming business. And I think business development also needs to be proactive. And so spending and having dedicated time or resources spent in new business is critical. And the final area is financial management. So managing your finances and looking, not just, you know, doing your accounting, but really having advice about what are best practices in the industry? How can we leverage, you know, taxes better? How do we look at our company or what are their financial benchmarks? And paying real deeper attention to your money and how you manage it and 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 how you plan it. I think a lot of people don't, creatives in general are terrible with money And they just rely on their accountant and their accountant simply does taxes, but is not really looking at the bigger picture. So those are the five areas.
0: Okay. And would any of these, you would say could be outsourced or do you think they should all be taken on by people within the firm?
1: No, I think it, it depends. Like every firm is different depending on their size. Sometimes you need somebody, like in financial management, I think it is sometimes outsourced, but it's somebody that you still have to, you have to ask them to help you. So if you have an accountant, you have to say, okay, you do my taxes, but can you do more? Can you help me look at the industry at large? Can you help me provide some financial benchmarks? Can you help me look, meet with me quarterly. So that is something you can outsource, but it's still, it's still in collaboration with you. It's not like you're not paying attention to it. So none of these roles should you be out of the loop of, but you need to be collaborating with and understand what's going on So operational leadership, I think, is something that's more of an internal role. And usually you need somebody dedicated to operational leadership when you have more than 20 people on your team. Any less than 20 people, then you might have just, you know, somebody might have some involvement in that on a part-time basis. So yeah, I think that sometimes you can have, I think in most cases you can have strategic partners in some areas, but I think you still, that doesn't stop you from having a role in that and being still involved.
0: But whoever does it, these are the five that you think really need to be covered yes. and easily yeah. overlooked in the rush to get the day-to-day work done.
1: Yeah. I would say the one thing you cannot never outsource is your business vision. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I would hope not, because someone else's business in that case, right?
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of clients, they just don't think – and my, many of my clients – just want me to tell them who they want to be when they grow up. And I'm like, no, I will help facilitate those conversations, but that needs to come from you. I don't have the answers. yeah. And it's your job to figure out what you love. What do you, who do you want to work with and who do you want to be? And what kinds of business do you want to run? And how big do you want to grow up to be? Those are things you have to focus on. Okay.
0: And so then maybe moving from that question, what kind of business do you want to be? The last topic I'd like to ask you about is this question of, because everything we've talked about so far has been centered around client work, but you also, towards the end of the book, talk about design entrepreneurship as an alternative or a complement to client services. So could you say something about maybe some examples of how you've seen that done well? and what what you think is important if you're considering it for your own company.
1: I think design entrepre- entrepreneurship is a really wonderful direction for a lot of firms, but I hesitate, and this is why. I, I actually haven't seen that many firms that can do it well because they can't. It's very hard to do anything really well unless you finish one thing first. So I think the people that are design entrepreneurs, and those are people that basically do products and sell products independent of clients, right?
0: Right. So, so this is developing your own product and taking it to market, hopefully taking yes. it to market and, mm-hmm. and selling it and generating revenue from that.
1: Yes. Yes. Or doing side projects that benefit you in other ways. And maybe it's not financial. It might be you know, good for the world kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the firms that do that well are firms that already have a great solid business model and now can focus on other things. A lot of creatives have a tendency to Pull themselves in a lot of different directions and do nothing very well. So they when they're doing design entrepreneurship, they neglect their business. Right. <laughs> you know, so once you've shored up your business, then you can do design entrepreneurship. One I think one firm that does it really, really well is Hyperact. They're a firm mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Okay. And they have a lot of different things that they do on the side, but their business, their their core business, which is called HyperAct, is very solid and very well run. And then they have then leveraged that passion and that interest to develop products and initiatives that they are interested in and that keep their team engaged. And they have what they call Hyperact Lab, which are self driven projects or design entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. Yeah, so Hyperact developed um, an online tool called onthegrid.com. And it's an online site that is curated. They have curators across the world that are creatives that. Um, take a city and they curate a city and they recommend restaurants and places to shop and places to see that are creative. So creatives will curate a city and it's basically if you want to go visit a city, you go to on the grid and you'll see your peers recommend the places to eat and the places to go. It's fantastic tool. Um, I don't know if that's a financially they don't lose money from it, but it's, you know, it's a model that they're they've developed that I think is in progress, that's working really, really well. Um, and it's just a passion of theirs, and it's a great way to build community because now they know these creatives across the world. So I think that's a wow,
0: great. yeah, very very smart. Okay, so I'll, yeah. it's, so that's on the grid dot city, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Yep. And and actually, I want to go and check that out myself. That sounds great.
1: Yeah, no, it's awesome for all creatives to know about that. Um, I think that's a perfect example of design entrepreneurship, and also podcasts, right? So a lot of designers do podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I have a client that specializes in retail design. She does design for A lot of kind of brick and mortars that want to then take their business online. And so she came up with the genius idea to to do a podcast for retailers. And it's a relatively new podcast. And it's a fantastic idea because it complements her business.
0: And do you have the name of the podcast?
1: Transforming Retail.
0: Transforming Retail Podcast. Mm -hmm. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes.
1: And she just started that. So it's just a relatively new effort. But I think it's also smart because it's related to her business model.
0: Right. And this is the thing about specialism, right?
1: Mm-hmm, exactly.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Emily. This has been a really fascinating journey on the inside and out of a 21st century creative business. Now we come to the part of the show where I ask my guest to set a creative challenge based on the theme that we've been talking about and something that you, the listener, can go away and do or start doing in the next seven days after listening to this interview so emily what's your challenge
1: oh yeah um i'm a big believer in saying no to to an opportunity or to a client or to a project that you've simply outgrown and to that open space into your business so my creative challenge is to think about what it is you need to say no to now that you've been avoiding so you can add, you can make space in your life for more yeses
0: Right. That's the big reason. It's not just about no, because each time you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So every time you say no, and it's very hard, but you just say no to one thing, you'll have more time to do other things that you really should be doing or that you want to do. And honestly, I do this every year. I always think about what's the one client I want to fire? or What's the one thing I don't want to do anymore? <laughs> <laughs>
0: every year there's some client praying, please, please don't let it be the year that Emily yeah. gives me the chop
1: As a matter of fact, in my book, I have um, what I call my business manifesto. That's on mm-hmm. the cover of the book. And one of them is that you should fire a client once a year, one client a year. It feels great.
0: What great. About? Well, then that's, that's a big, bold no. So have a, have a think. And I'm sure there's, you know, any of us listening to this, you know, in business or not, there's got to be something in our lives that we say yes to by default because it seems easier, but actually there's, it comes at a big cost.
1: Yeah. Yeah, or you've been doing it so long that it's no longer creative challenge, creatively challenging.
0: Right. So, Emily, where can people go to, A, to get the book and also to get some more of your wisdom and advice? Um, I'm sure there may well be some design firms listening who could benefit from some of your straight talking and enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I, I do love working with creatives. Um, you can get my book on my website, which is emilycohen.com. Mm-hmm. Also, you can get it at my publishing site, which is booksellersdaughter.com. And my Emily Cohen site has a lot more content and resources. And if they want to see me speak or whatever, I'm always constantly posting on social media where I'm speaking next.
0: Great. Okay. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes as usual. So thank you very much, Emily. I always enjoy talking to you. Today has been certainly no exception. And I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners out there who've got a lot out of your enthusiasm today.
1: Great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being included. It's been awesome.
0: You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets On carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.